Can Sunday's sermon inspire listeners to practice Christian witness in their day-to-day life? In this episode, you will hear from Sally Brown, an ordained Presbyterian pastor and professor of preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary. She spoke with us about her new book, Sunday's Sermon for Monday's World, Preaching to Shape Daring Witness. Sally talks with us about how preaching can help people be agents of redemptive interruption and inspire others to exhibit the inclusive love, radical mercy, and restorative justice of God. Listen in to learn about embodied Christian witness, imagination theory, and sermons that have the capacity to influence action. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Right, Sally, thank you for sitting down today to talk with me about teaching preaching and about particularly um, your new book that is that has come out. I want to start our conversation um, just to simply ask you, what drew you to study homiletics in the beginning and then to commit yourself to nurturing and, and teaching preaching in all these years? Thank you. That's, um, that's always interesting for me to reflect on finding myself now having taught preaching for 22, almost 23 years. Um, I was in the, in the ministry for 18 years, non-parish for five and parish ministry for 13. It was early in the second call that I really started thinking more about my own preaching and felt that I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I had had exactly one course. Um, I took the course at a time when actually I didn't believe that women were called to preach. Um, So you can imagine I didn't take it terribly seriously, but then, you know, one thing you, you change and your mind is changed and the spirit changes your mind. And I realized I was called into the ministry, called to preach, called to the pulpit. And I found myself in a call where I was preaching regularly Um, Not every week, but on a regular basis, every month and three services. And by the end of the morning, I whatever I'd done, I'd done in the hearing of about eleven hundred people. And I was very self-conscious about how little I really understood what I was up there doing. So I took a seminar um, that was on preaching parables. And by about the end of the and this was at Princeton, continuing education. Um, Tom Long was doing a seminar on preaching parables. And by the end of day one, I knew that whatever this was we were doing, which was was really more homiletical theory and rethinking how we how we read a text, how we move from text to sermon, whatever this was, I wanted to be doing it. So one thing led to another. I did some tutorials, um, not only with Tom Long, but also Christine Smith. Um, Just one day. Um, tutorials. They gave me reading lists. I did the reading. We would have a conversation. We would listen to my own sermons and critique them. And um, eventually I decided I wanted to at least um, attempt um, to get into a PhD program. And that happened. And uh, I I guess the rest of the story is, is clear enough. My first call was to Lancaster Seminary, where I taught for three years. And I'm happy to say that the current homiletician there is a graduate of our program, uh, Catherine Williams. um, And I worked with her in her dissertation. And then I moved to Princeton in 2001. That's great. Thank you, Sally. The the next thing I want to ask you is, so that's what drew you in 
um, how you began to teach preaching. Mm -hmm. And then, Mm -hmm. so through your career, I mean, you've studied, you've written, you've, you've been teaching pastors. Um, What, what prompted the writing of this particular book, Sunday Sermon for Monday's World? What, what brought you and why did you write this? I've always taught preaching as, as I say to my students with one foot in the congregation, you know, I think if you spent enough years just immersed in congregational ministry, you always feel the, the interconnection between the sermon and the rest of life, the rest of parish life, you know, the rest of congregational life. But also you get more conscious of what is it like for these people in the pews to step out the door um, you know, by the time they get in their cars, do they even remember what the sermon was about, you know, um, and and what can help people? What I'm hoping happens in the pulpit is that we hand people a lens on the basis of the text we're preaching and the way we open it up for them. I hope that what I'm opening up is a lens into the world and the Monday to Saturday world not just talking in sort of an echo chamber of of Christian Sunday morning or Saturday night worship. Um, I want their world to look different because of what happened in the sermon. So uh, that's always been a preoccupation of mine. And then it seemed to me that sermons had to get to be something more than memorable. They had to somehow become portable in the sense that that you could you could grab that lens and look through it and see your world differently and recognize how God is working in that space. Um, and you can be a participant in whatever God is doing to work redemptively in that moment in time that may, may be at work or school or in the cafeteria or um, you know, at the, you know, with the other soccer moms at the soccer field. And I got interested in what makes the sermon portable into the world of Monday to Saturday. So I began reading on the subject of the how, how what inspires any human action. And I got interested in imagination theory because as Paul Ricoeur says, um, imagination is essential to all human action. We we, uh, mentally rehearse in a nanosecond our choices in a situation, and then we choose. But, But there's this dynamic of imaginative rehearsal. And I wondered how could the sermon itself become part of the imaginative rehearsal for human action in the everyday world. Um, I also then got interested in what is Christian witness because um, the do- one of the dominant models over the last 15 years or so, more than that, probably 20 years, 25, has been a missional approach that really emphasizes the witness of the whole congregation as a body that lives out and, and bodies forth Christian convictions in the world, but even um, insiders to the missional movement have said, what's happened to the witness of the individual? And the reason I think that's so important is that public worship really isn't so public anymore. A lot of people regard worship services, um, religious um, gatherings as private, not public. Um, And and, and so where are people likely to encounter a believable embodiment of Christian faith? Well, in individual lives, in the individual lives of the Christians they happen to rub shoulders with, 
in ordinary space um, any day of the week. So that became my interest. What's the connection between a sermon that develops this capacity for faith-shaped imaginative rehearsal that influences the action that one might take on an ordinary day in an ordinary space in a situation that maybe has some ethical um, or edge to it or or calls for a way of of um, exhibiting the what I call in the book the the inclusive love the radical mercy and the restorative justice of God. The other thing you you lift up in the book and use as a as a lens and and that I have actually heard you talk about in your teaching and other conversations we've had over the years is you talk about promise grounded hope and that's a um, key part of this book um, but you you came to that idea before you even wrote this book so can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you mean about promise grounded hope what is it and why is it why is it so important I do think that's a critical question and a critical point of departure and the work I do. I think especially in this pandemic, we've really been um, conscious of how, what is hope and where does it come from? And then we've been living through really a double viral pandemic um, as, the pan, as the COVID pandemic exposed so many inequities that are traceable to systemic racism in American society, inequities in healthcare and access and um, even vulnerability to the disease and to dying of it. All of that um, connects to race and a long history here. So um, where does hope come from? I've been very much influenced by what's sometimes called apocalyptic theology and some of my other colleagues here represent that too. Um, And the accent there is that Hope comes from the God who promises again and again and again. Um, it happens in both the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. It happens as well as as well in the New Testament. Promises the renewal of all things. Um, the, that there is, that God is bringing about a new creation. God promises to make all things new. And there are visions of what that new creation will look like. For example, you find it in Isaiah 65 and in other places in the Old Testament. You find it in Revelation, of course. I, I, and behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Um, and then Paul the Apostle talks about we are a new creation. Or actually, he simply says, doesn't even use is, he just says, behold, new creation. When he went in speaking of the risen Christ and our participation in the life of the risen Christ. So um, what that does, if we can affirm in preaching um, that God, God has promised and is bringing about a new creation, then what we're doing in preaching is to invite people to see and participate in that reality. In other words, we don't come up with the hope Um, human optimism and endurance are powerful things. There's no question about that. And I don't mean to diminish the meaningfulness of human optimism and endurance, particularly during this pandemic, the endurance of people of color um, through decades and, and, and now hundreds of years of oppressive 
um, systemic bias against them. And I, I don't mean to diminish that. But genuinely, Christian hope anchors itself in the future that is already established in the risen Jesus Christ, who's called the firstborn of the new creation. Um, that God has already begun this transformed future. It is, it is reaching out to meet us from the future. And I believe that the spirit is at work all around us in the church and outside of the church, um, creating this ferment um, of transformation toward this renewal of all things, all created things, not just humans, but the whole, um, the ecology in which we live, the environment, um, all, all, all creatures, all living things, and, and even the inanimate. So my understanding of preaching is that we preach anchored in, in the future. Every sermon is anchored in the future, in a sense. Um, in the promise of God to bring about that renewal of all things. And then that, that enlists maybe our optimism and our endurance, but the hope doesn't, isn't something we have to generate. And, and we don't go into the pulpit to say, you know, we, we got to get it right or the reign of God can't come. In other words, we're, that, that makes us always pushing from behind and scolding people for their failures and telling them, do this, do this, do that. You know, we, we lengthen their to-do list, which was long enough when they came into church. I don't think that's what Christian preaching needs to do. First and foremost, it needs to announce that despite all, whatever may have happened to you this week, God is still at work and God's promises are good. And the new creation has begun. And we have the opportunity to participate so that a sermon says, because God promises and then fill in the blank depends very much on your text. We can, rather than saying we must, we ought, we should all the time. Um, what do we now have the opportunity to be, to become, to do, to say, to create? Um, because God's new creation is laying claim to the present and to us. So that's what I mean by promise grounded hope. And the third chapter of Sunday's Sermon, Monday's World, is devoted to that. You talk about wanting to anchor the sermon in that future reality, in that mm -hmm. promise ground, grounded hope. And the book is about mm -hmm. how we might preach that way. But the real purpose is, I think, is not just about the preacher's witness, but mm -hmm. it's the sermon that then ignites, enlists, encourages the witness of the community, of each individual that makes up that community and, and how they can bear witness in their everyday lives, you know, Monday to Saturday. So you touched on it a little bit, talking about Christian witness, but I wonder if you can spend a little more time about what does faithful Christian witness look like for you for mm -hmm. the average everyday person who's coming up and sitting in the pews on Sunday morning? What, what's, what's a story or a description of that in your mind? Like, what are you, what, mm -hmm. what image are you using as you're writing this book for Christian witness? What I have in mind is a person who is going about her everyday week, the roles she plays, um, as parent, maybe as a worker, as a volunteer, as a voter, um, maybe she's a board member 
um, for a nonprofit, whatever that person is doing, and just even in the most mundane kind of interactions, for instance, at a social event of some sort, um, and say that um, she finds herself in the middle of a discussion um, which involves some kind of belittling language, say, toward women, um, toward women's leadership or something. I would imagine her as a person who speaks up about that and says, and, and says, you know, I, I have trouble with, with the kind of language that diminishes uh, women's capacity to lead or to lead with authority. Their authority may look different. It may look more, more um, like achieving consensus to move forward. But um, I have trouble with diminishing women in this way. Um, so that just in an ordinary conversation, you would bear witness to go back to that tri triad, to the inclusive love, the radical mercy, the restorative justice of God. Maybe that's a restorative justice kind of comment. Um, in, in that you, you want to help us see differently, aligned with uh, a new creation in which women, as well as men, are called into leadership and, and fullness of, of the use of their gifts. So it, it can be just as mundane as that. I do begin the book with some examples, which actually only one of the examples that I use is someone who consciously identified with the church, and that was Rosa Parks. I mentioned Rosa Parks and what she did, and actually there was a lot of activism on her part that led up to the day that she did not give up her seat. But um, in the moment, because of the person she had become and because of the person of faith that she was, she had the courage to seize a moment that would make a difference, that would um, change, shift the situation. And and change this and challenge the status quo. Um, and then I speak of, um, for, for instance, the individual only known as the tank man, the young man who stood in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square in China. And then I mention a couple of others. What these have in common is that this person is act, acting as, as um, a couple of my colleagues put it in a book, as agents of redemptive interruption. Well, actually the redemptive is my contribution. They talk about witness as acting as an agent of interruption of the status quo to bear witness to, to a transformed reality, the, the future that God is bringing about. And um, so I talk about people and I wanna see the people in the pew think of themselves as agents of redemptive interruption, potentially in an ordinary situation to, to shift things toward rightness, toward justice and toward inclusivity and toward mercy. Um, but that takes imagination. So then you roll it back to the Sunday to the Sunday morning pulpit and even behind that to the work and the study on the sermon. And the sermon needs to be about how can we help people become um, imaginative, um, anchored in their faith tradition, anchored in understanding 
God's inclusive love and radical mercy and restorative justice by, you know, being steeped in the stories and the metaphors of scripture and in the practices of faith and the church and individually. So you have all these resources. And then like a jazz player, you draw this deep tradition and you play out something new, something imaginative and something apt to the moment and the situation. That for me is embodied Christian witness in the everyday world. That imaginative, improvisational drawing out of a deep tradition. Um, And my job is to help people inhabit that tradition as I draw them into a inside a story. You know, we're not supposed to really, I think we're not supposed to so much explain the stories of scripture as explore them and help other people to explore their dynamics. Um, and I, I do think that an awful lot of emphasis has been on information. If we tell people, if, if we give people enough information about what they ought to do, then they will act. Well, what if they need us to help them develop their imagination rather than just stuff their head full of information? Because unless you are able to look imaginatively into the world and discern the what I call the public presence of God, the presence of the spirit, the possibilities of the spirit in that setting. You don't need to flip through a, a manual, uh, you know, sort of, this is a metaphor, uh, flip through a manual and try to find the right injunction for that moment. You need to be able to relate to it imaginatively coming out of the stories of scripture that have shaped you. But I think often the missing move at the end of a sermon is, wow, what could this look like? An imaginative move on the part of the preacher. Um, So too many sermons analyze a problem, apply in some sense the scripture and given the list of shoulds and oughts on the basis of the scripture and then just say and and may we go into the world as as true disciples of Jesus yeah but show me what that looks like what does that look like on main street so i i really encourage my preachers to spend at least um one fourth of the sermon toward its end saying what might this look like in our community what how could this change the way that we interact with neighbors um, of other cultures than our own? It might look like this. What if that? Um, there are some preachers who do that exceptionally well. And one well-known one is Barbara Brown Taylor. She's just one of many who are doing this, uh, have been doing this for a long time. In the book, to um, when you unpack uh, Christian witness and you talk about it in terms of participation and imagination, you draw on the work of Craig Van Gelder and Dwight Shiley. Can you say a little bit more about that? Go a little deeper um, into their work and how that has informed your understanding of what it means to be a Christian person bearing witness in the public square. Yeah, it's it's partly Van Gelder and Shiley, also Craig Dykstra and Dorothy Bass um, redefined Christian witness as participation. Um, I think the imagination move comes particularly from um, Van Gilder and mm-hmm. Shiley. The participation move comes especially from Craig Dykstra and Dorothy yeah. Bass. And um, 
so so this is the idea that God has preceded us into every situation. I sometimes um, say in sermons, no matter where we find ourselves, God got there first. Um, and so then our job is to be alert to the possibilities that the Spirit of God is, is opening up um, in a situation for us to participate in the in the in the flow of God's redemptive transforming grace expressed in the situation or maybe just name it or bring it to bear or call it forth in a particular situation so it's not that we bring God to a godless world we go to meet God where God is already working in the world and in ordinary space that's what i mean by participation we participate in something that is already underway in the power of the spirit. The thing that kept coming to mind to me was remembering at a class years ago on the Gospel of Mark with Dom Jewell at Princeton mm. Seminary. Mm. And in the in the crucifixion, when the temple curtain is torn, the phrase Don used was that God is on the loose. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so mm-hmm. so God right. has gone before us, and mm-hmm. you're right; it's not us to to bring God around, but to point out and to discover where God is already at work in the world. Another move you make toward the end of the book, you do <laughs> have an interesting chapter toward the end that I wanted to get to a little bit on metaphor, because mm-hmm. as you acknowledge in the book too, some people become squeamish about metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really point to it as as um, one particular preacher move or whatever that might um, allow us to to bring it home to to the wit- to the witnesses who are in our pews as a way to maybe do that that move of so 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 what you know what does this mean what does yes. this- what mm-hmm. does this look like? Can you say a little bit more about metaphor, maybe address the issue that why some people are uncomfortable with it and why you think it actually can be used well for preaching? I think historically, the theological mistrust of metaphor is that metaphor is, um, it is a poetic device. Um, generally, it's something like, well, let's take one that's been common in, in our conversation over this past year of the pandemic. People, I guess you'd only say this in Christian circles, but people might are saying these days, I've I've been living in exile so long, I'm really ready to get back to normal. Well, what are they alluding to? They're they're alluding to um, a sense of displacement from whatever feels like home or normal. Um, but they use the term exile. Are they literally in exile? To be exile is to be banned, you know, from one place to a to a foreign place. It's a major um, trope in scripture. Um, the, there are literal, the, there's a literal exile um, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem to Babylon, and there's a return. Um, although home doesn't turn out to be, you know, even home is, is kind of a metaphor. And we use metaphors all the time in common speech. Um, for example, we might say in a discussion that's ranging all over the place, um, you might say if you're trying to bring people back on, let's get back to home base and deal with, you know, the problem at hand. Are you really asking everybody to go outside, find a baseball field and find home base? No, you're not. You're using a metaphor. Um, But the metaphor evokes the whole kind of, you know, the game and 
we get it. We, we know that we need to get back to the place from which we start. So that's one. And I already used a metaphor, actually, in, in uh, this conversation. I talked about, is, is preaching meant to hand us a rule book that we sort of a pocket rule book for how to handle every conceivable situation? Is, is the crucial element information? And do we really, are we really expecting people to compose or are we composing a literal physical rule book? No, but you know what I'm talking about. And I say that I don't think that's what preaching is meant to do. Um, so we use metaphors all the time. There, it, it's, it's a very common way of communicating in shorthand with each other. And then there are some that you know, are used so much that they're called dead metaphors because they're not really very interesting anymore because we've been using them for so long. Like, you know, I don't know, my father used to say, boy, it's hot as blazes today, you know, which was sort of a euphemism for hell. But um, it, it that, that's obviously a metaphor, you know, is it is it literal hell out, out on the sidewalk? No. Um, so it's non-literal and Theology has um, treated metaphor as therefore untrustworthy obfuscation when you could say the same thing perfectly clearly. Let the philosopher Paul Ricoeur, who I mentioned earlier in relation to imaginative rehearsal for action, also wrote a bit about, quite a bit about metaphor. And he says that a metaphor allows us to evoke a, a depth of understanding that literal language could not achieve. For example, I talk in the book about a sermon that's well known already to, to at least some of the readers of the book, um, preached by Dr. Anna Carter Florence way back before she was, when she was just a brand new uh, young pastor. She preached at General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. And the sermon was, was called At the River's Edge. She's, she uses the story of Pharaoh's daughter um, encountering the, hearing this, this infant cry coming from a basket that's floating toward her on the river. The river's edge is the metaphor, is the is one of the dominant metaphors of that sermon. And by the end of the sermon, we are she places us all on the river's edge. And the river's edge is wherever we find ourselves in our ordinary lives. And the and the river that is life flows by and brings to us human identities and situations um, that we can't ignore that we can't pretend not to hear, not to see. The river's edge is a place of um, being confronted with, with what is out there and making a decision about how we will act. So, um, and what's so powerful about it is that it's portable. After hearing that sermon, you recognize that you're on the edge of the river when something confronts you that you've got to deal with. You have to make an ethical decision about how to respond. So that's just one example of a metaphor and many um, excellent preachers use metaphor. That's great, Sally. I, what I want to ask you last is what do you hope the, the preacher or just the person who picks up this book and reads it, what do you hope um, they will receive by reading this and maybe have the courage to do? I hope that um, preachers will have the courage to invite people into, into an imaginative engagement with stories in scripture and also um, help people to reimagine 
their everyday world as the arena of God's constant, transformative, redemptive activity, and and that preachers would help the people in the pews to see themselves as those potential agents of redemptive interruption in ordinary places. And it doesn't have to be as dramatic as being the the guy who stood in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square. I think often it 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 simply is um, looking for that opportunity in the ordinary situation to exercise mercy, inclusive love, and justice to challenge the status quo in some way um, with courage and with some imagination, and to be willing to get it wrong. I mean, improvisation is is not an exact science. I guess if you ask any, ask any jazz player, for example, um, and I don't think improvisation is an exact science and some days it goes better than other, other days. But um, it, I do think that we're called upon to be creative and inventive um, participants in what God is doing in the world. And I hope that that, that preachers would be excited about that life forming, vision forming task and begin to use more imagination, more of the what if and what might it look like here kind of move. And the people in the pews would would feel that transfer of energy that, you know, the sermon is finally handed to them um, in in the form of a new lens or a new metaphor or an animating story that helps them experience everyday life differently. So that would be my hope. Um, I did teach out of the book this last semester. Um, I heard some wonderful sermons um, from my students who really caught on to this idea of imaginative rehearsal and um, encouraging those in the pews to be agents of redemptive interruption in the world. Great, thank you, Sally. Thank you, I appreciated the conversation. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sushama Austin-Connor. And I'm Sherry Osting. I'm Omar Peterman, and I am in charge of production. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.